All right. Good morning. I got handouts again. If anybody would mind helping me hand them out. That's roughly half. Good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here with us again this morning. Uh, we'll be continuing this series we've started called Foundations of Faith. Um, this morning, I'll be getting into a, a new topic. Last week, we, we finished up. Um, and so today's lesson title uh, is The Inspired word. Now before we start, as you guys are getting your handouts, I do have an editing note. I had a bit of a typo. Um, if you look under the second main bullet point, uh, first bullet there says, unlike most books, you can go ahead and cross out most and put other books. Um, I think technically is both still true, but I think other is probably the better exclusive term based on what we're talking about and that'll make more sense all right looks like we got most of the handouts going by now all right so this morning we're talking about the inspired word when we we're talking about the word obviously especially with a capital w um the bible is going to be involved in that right a little bit more than that too but we'll get into that in a minute um, but the topic this morning really is about Scripture. It's about the Bible. So the picture up on the screen, you can see that, uh, that is the Museum of the Bible. It's located in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was founded by, I think, the same guy that owns Hobby Lobby. I think he, I think he uh, funded uh, the creation of this museum about a little over a decade ago. Um, hosts around one million visitors a year in Washington, D.C. That's pretty impressive. Um, thousands and thousands of different items in the museum's collection, uh, some historical, some more of just a informative nature, I guess. Um, very interesting, the Bible having its own museum dedicated to it, right? Uh, especially one as big as this one in our nation's capital. Of course, it's not without its own controversy. The, the founder apparently has had some issues and has had to go to court with some people who have tried to sell forgeries of different artifacts, uh, fakes of, of various kinds, claiming that these were authentic biblical time artifacts um, that were then discovered later by experts to be forged. Um, but I think it goes to show the interest that people have in the Bible itself. And not just, you know, Christianity, but like the Bible as in the book. Um, 
the Bible's a very interesting book when you sit down and you think about it, and when you really you know, consider what all's going on when you open the pages. Um, not only does the Bible tell us where we came from, right? It, it challenges us, it tells us how to live. It provides examples for us to learn from. Uh, within the Bible, there's multiple genres of, of literature. There's poetry, right, and the Psalms, and there's Proverbs, wise sayings. There's uh, history recorded all over the place. There's prophecy. So there's a whole lot going on. The Bible, as just a, a book itself, is a very interesting um, piece of, of literature. And of course, we understand it to be more than that. But my point is, the Bible garners interest from people all over the world. It's fascinated people from all backgrounds over hundreds of years, getting into the, the thousands at this point, right? Um, depending on how you categorize, you know. Anyway, you get my, you get my point. Um, we're nearing 2,000 years of when some of the New Testament was written, and thousands of years with the Old Testament Scripture, right? And so over all this time, it's not only fascinated believers, but non-believers as well. Uh, I, I read a, a statistic last night, and I really need to update this, but as of 1995, so that's... How many years ago at this point? I was five years old, so let's not get into that too much. Um, according to, I think it was the Guinness Book of World Records, over five billion copies of the Bible had been sold and distributed. And I don't know when they started uh, recording that. But five billion copies, more than any other book in the world. By far more than any other book in the world. Like, the ones behind it don't even come close. And while this interest isn't always driven by faith, like I said, uh, most people have some level of familiarity with the Bible. Uh, people have general awareness of the Bible just from living in society and living in, in our culture, right? You, mention, you say the word the Bible to a lot of people, they know, they have some thought already, right? It may be a preconceived notion, it may be an experience from going to some religious group, but most people are going to have a thought and an opinion when you start talking about the Bible. People study it from an academic perspective, a secular perspective. Um, you know, it's, it's something that everyone knows about. So it's important for us to have confidence in God's Word, in the Bible as God's Word, um, to be able to understand what we have here, you know, what's been given to us, what we've been entrusted with. Because, as in the case with the... Uh, the museum there, there's a lot of forgeries out there. And I'm not saying forgeries of the Bible, but I'm saying forgeries of Scripture, right? Forgeries of teaching. False teaching. And so understanding what the Bible says, what the Bible is, versus what all the people out there are saying about it, being able to understand the truth from error, is important. Again, we're talking about foundations of faith. And, and when I was last up here, I was talking about God himself, right, and God's existence and who God is, well, we get a lot of that, especially when we went over the identity part of God, from Scripture, from the Bible. So we need to understand the Bible because the Bible is where we get our faith from, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God in these pages. All right. So what I want to do is give you four main points this morning 
Um, I'm not saying this is an exclusive or exhaustive list, but I thought it was fairly well comprehensive for getting uh, a good scope of, of the Bible itself as God's Word. Alright, so the first one, uh, God's Word, the Bible, is divine. Okay? Uh, unlike most books, and we talked about this, I think, in my previous lesson a little bit, talking about the identity of God, unlike most books, the Bible has divine authorship, and it claims as much. Unlike other books, all other books, as I said, let me strike that out there for my little editing mistake. Unlike all other books, the Bible has divine authorship. What does that mean? Well, it means the source of the material, the source of the words, don't come from man, they come from God. Either, you know, uh, directly to the prophets, indirectly from, from Jesus, who is God, bringing the word down, um, and then going through the apostles, it's still the origin is all from God. We understand even from Old Testament times, perhaps in a different manner, but still God's word uh, came to man. If we go to Second uh, Peter, Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty-one, I'm actually going to read twenty and twenty-one, uh, starting in Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay? So going all the way into the Old Testament, prophecy. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means coming from God. That God had a very large role in the words we see even from the Old Testament times from the prophets. The words came from God. They were written by, written down, recorded, and then spread by man, by his prophets. Coming into the New Testament era, while it may look different, instead of God's prophets speaking through the Holy Spirit, now we have Jesus coming in the Gospels, but again, still bringing God's will. Uh, John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus is speaking here, and he's just finished saying that, uh, you know, I, I am the bread of life, right? I am the one who sustains. So in verse 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Building this link between Jesus and his identity as God. God's will coming and being taught through Jesus, right? Jesus giving God's word and God's will to us. So we see a continuation here. Going from the, the patriarchal times where God was, was speaking directly to man... Then coming into most of the Old Testament period with the prophets, where God is speaking to the prophets who then speak to God's people or to others, in some cases, um, of God's warnings and His instruction. Now in the, the New Testament era, God's Word coming through Jesus, the Messiah, and then 
as we get out of the gospel accounts and into the New Testament church in that era, well, what is Jesus, who is, again, bringing God's will, what does he say is going to happen at that point? We get into John chapter 16. Again, Jesus is speaking. Um, verse 12, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. Well, what things is Jesus wanting to say? Parts of God's will, right? He doesn't have the um, ability to share them now because the apostles and disciples can only bear so much. However, in verse 13, what he says is, when the spirit of truth comes, this same spirit who was moving the prophets, right? He will guide you into all the truth, or he will not speak on his own initiative, just as Jesus did not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will guide you into truth. So, continuing this, this line, going from the prophets to Jesus to now the Spirit guiding the apostles into all truth, recording now what we have as the New Testament, combining those two. And so now we have the totality of Scripture. And from beginning to end, there is that link to divine authorship in some way, whether through the prophets, whether through the words of Christ, whether through the teachings of the apostles. From cover to cover, we have a trace back to God, divine authorship. Now, similar to that, but I think distinct in a way, I wanted to kind of keep these two distinct so that I can also address this part. Um, God's Word is also eternal. What is God's Word? Well, in a very unhelpful definition, it is the Word of God. It is God's will. God is eternal. So if God's eternal, and God has will, that means that God's will is eternal, correct? If God has His Word, and God is eternal, then God's Word must be eternal too. And there's some implications to that. Um, let's go ahead and just go back to Genesis chapter 1. Back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're all familiar with that passage. What that and additional study will show us, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, God being eternal before the beginning. God always being and will always be. But if you get into, again, John... John's Gospel account. Very interesting passage at the very beginning. Uh, we'll read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, as we continue to read this uh, section of Scripture, we understand that this, at least in my Translation, capitalized W word, is referring to Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus had a role in the creation. Jesus is God. Was God, is God, will be God. The, if you ever want to do an interesting word study, you can go look at the, the word here, the, the, the term here for a word, 
which in Greek is logos. And it's it, there's very interesting concepts about how you know, Christ is manifesting the the thoughts of God. That in a way, Christ is the thoughts of God, right? God's word, God's will, made manifest and come down to earth. And so, if we link together God's will and God's word with Christ, and we know that Christ was in the beginning with God, again, we have a link now to understand God's will and God's word being eternal. Because it would have been around, manifested in Jesus before the beginning, and will be and continue to be to continue to be so after the end of time. Um, I'll also get into Matthew chapter twenty-four. Matthew twenty-four and verse uh, thirty-five. Jesus is speaking the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. God's word will not pass away. Jesus will not pass away. Being eternal, there is no beginning, there is no end. And now we can see, demonstrating through Genesis and John, before the beginning, now seeing here in uh, Matthew, no end. Will not pass away. Also just tying this directly to the nature of, of God himself. If we go to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi 3, verse 6. There's this interesting statement made. For I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, continues, therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's using this as... Uh, the basis for his uh, conversation here through the prophet. But he's saying, I do not change. If God does not change, if God is, uh, the term would be immutable, unchanging, then the traits of God are unchanging too, right? God is love. God has always been love. God will always be love. God is just. He's always been just. He always will be just. If God is not changing, his traits are not changing, his will is not changing, his word is not changing, which means that Scripture is not changing. That Christ is not changing. And this is sometimes a, a difficult conversation that we get into with some people, especially you know, in the religious world, maybe in, in our area when we're speaking to folks. And God's word does not change because God does not change. If God's word is God's will and God doesn't change, then his will is not going to change either. What his will was yesterday is the same as his will tomorrow. And it's the same as his will today. And so... When you see people trying to use God's words and reframe them now in a way that is not what Scripture says, but are trying to do to basically adapt God's word or His will to the times, to the trends of the day, we understand that God does not change. God's will and His word doesn't change because it is eternal. Unlike the trends that we go through and that we see in culture through our lives, those, those come and pass away. Fads come and pass away. Values change in the world because the world is always chasing the next big thing, the next shiny object. But God is eternal. He's different than that. So, therefore, having no beginning, having no end, 
and the origin of the Word, God, being unchanging, we understand that God's Word will never need to be replaced, it will never need to be corrected, and it will never need to be added to. Which, now that I think about it, would have been a really good way to segue into the fourth point instead of the third point. So I'll take that as a note. If I do this lesson again, I might swap the order of some of these. But does that make sense? There's a couple of link. There's a couple of logical links here. But I think when you put it all out together, Jesus being the Word, the Word being God's, Jesus being God, you kind of have this nice melding here of all these concepts together, all being eternal due to effectively being God, either directly or, or indirectly. Right. We, we, we see this too. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Right? We're not changing God's will to adapt to our situation. We're changing ourselves to adapt to what God says. Regardless of what year it is, regardless of what country we live in, regardless of what the people around us are saying, we don't conform. Right, that's the idea of being eternal, right? It's outside of time. It's, it's not dependent on time. It doesn't care about what time it, what time it is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really nice to have a God that doesn't change, right? Uh, you think about the weather, right? Always changing, and you can't always rely on it. You don't know what's going to happen. It's nice to have a God who's not like the weather. <clears throat> it's also into God is always the same. You ain't got to worry about if he's in a good mood or bad mood like we are or our parents sometimes. That's true. Humans, humans change a lot too, right? We're, we're a little un- <coughs> unpredictable. All right. Uh, third point I want to bring out, and this one's a little different than the rest, but I think it's also important because the other concepts I've talked about are, I think, more abstract and spiritual in nature. And this is still spiritual, but it also, I think, has a, a more direct link to our, to our experience on earth, right? So God's word is historical. And what does that mean? Well, like most historical texts that you would find in a, a museum, like we mentioned earlier, or textbooks or whatever it is, uh, scripture was written by real people recording real events. Real people living real lives in a real place during a real time, talking about real people doing real things. And it may, it's sometimes difficult for us to relate to that, I think, because so much of what happens that's recorded in Scripture, you know, it, it's all taking place in a place where we don't live. You know, we don't, we don't live in uh, the areas where all of this was going on. So sometimes it might be kind of difficult to wrap our heads around that. 
um, people who have traveled over to the to the Middle East, especially into to Israel, and actually seen some of these sites, or maybe to uh, like the, the Greek and Roman architecture over in Europe. You know, that's really interesting stuff, and I think it, it provides an extra appreciation for those people who can who can do those things. But I don't think it's necessary. It's just helpful to visualize. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, the Bible has a place in history. It's not just a religious book. It's not just a philosophical, ethical book. But it's a book written down, recorded by real people in real times here on planet Earth. Um, so one example is accounts of historical events that we see in historical texts, that we see in other religions as well throughout the world. Um, so, so worldwide recorded things. Not only talking about maybe uh, the movements of, of nations and, and wars and such, but one thing I thought about was, of course, uh, the flood, right? The flood account is not exclusive to the Bible. If you look into ancient religions, there's flood stories everywhere. There's flood stories all throughout Asia. There's flood stories uh, in Africa. I think there might be flood stories in South America and North America too. All these religions have a flood story. And it's always this big cataclysmic you know, world scale type of flood. Um, I think some historians will try to write this off as well. The, a flood happened nearby and so they, they exaggerated it to be something more than it was. But if everyone in the world is saying that they experienced a worldwide flood... You kind of have to wonder, maybe that actually did happen. Um, I read an interesting thing last night uh, about the Tower of Babel. I didn't know this. But apparently there were some uh, Dutch sailors. I think it was the 1600s. And they got shipwrecked off the coast of Korea. And at the time, Korea was very isolated. Didn't, didn't deal with, with people outside of their uh, borders anyway. Um, but of course, from Europe to to East Asia at the time was not a very common thing. Um, the, the travel there was not very common. But these men who were in Korea, the ones who eventually left, um, some wound up in Japan, what they said was the monks in Korea had a story about a tower that people built to try to reach God. And God struck them down and changed their languages. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> <laughs> you might have heard that before. And so it's interesting, you have these, these isolated people off in Eastern Asia who have their tradition going back hundreds, maybe thousands, at least hundreds of years, these monks who have the same story, the same Tower of Babel story. And so I, I just think it's very interesting when you look into um, the, the underlying commonalities between a lot of these ancient religions that point to stuff we have in Scripture. Things that, that they claim happened, that the Bible claims too. Even scientists that don't believe in God have flood story. They say the whole earth was an ocean at one time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. It's a flood story. Where do you think it went from? It's, the earth was covered with water. Yeah, I mean, the earth being covered with water explains a lot of things. I want to Maybe first or second grade, um, and it, it hit one of my friends, and she said, "You mean all this stuff we've been learning about is real?" 
that she just, I'm sure it's been said to her before, but she had never internalized the fact that, that Noah and, you know, Joseph and Abraham, that all of it was true. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for our kids because they hear the story of Cinderella, the story of Snow White, the story of Beauty and the Beast, the story of David and Goliath. And it's sort of all, it can get mixed together if we're not very careful to emphasize how this is a different kind of story. This is a story of history. And I think that's one reason it's so good that we have the study school stuff that we have now where they have the museum and they go in and they learn about the geography, the time frame, the location, the historical artifacts. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that that really brings home to them that, hey, this, this thing that you learned about and you craft about yesterday, let's talk about when it happened and where it happened mm-hmm. um, and really rooting those things in their real world so they don't get them mixed up with, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. Right. Um, I think we know that, but I think it's good to, if, if you're talking to your grandkids or you're talking to your kids, you know, make sure that you make the point that, like, hey, this is a thing that actually happened. I think we take that for granted. Like, we might know it, but I think we take it for granted that our, that our kids might be able to distinguish between, uh, you know, what they might be reading in, in a children's book versus what they're being taught at church. And I think it is a good point that we need to be uh, intentional about making sure to convey this is, this is history, this isn't fiction. Um, the, the other one that I had was records of, of kingdoms and rulers, which I mentioned earlier. You have Nebuchadnezzar out of Babylon, you have Cyrus out of Persia, you have Caesar Augustus mentioned in the New Testament from Rome. These are real people, and you can go and study what we know about these real people based on historical texts, out, even outside the Bible, that mention these people and what they did and the lives they lived. And why that's important, again, we, we addressed this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago, is that it's not just that Scripture is moral teaching, but it's also eyewitness accounts. And we can trust Scripture as eyewitness accounts. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Uh, Therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will, also, who will be able to teach others also. The, the idea of, of being an eyewitness is very important in the New Testament uh, writings. And that falls to us today, in a sense, of teaching the New Testament. But we have writings, we have accounts from people who were there, who saw these things and wrote them down. And that, again, roots it in history, so that it's not just you know, philosophical, ethical, moral considerations, but it's things actually happening to real people that we can relate to. Okay, uh, last point for today, uh, God's word is sufficient. You see, I have the, the toolbox picture up there. So the idea is that we have everything that we need from Scripture. Um, I'm going to skip over this first reading and get back to it in a second. Um, but the word contains everything we need to live holy lives. It's sufficient for us, for example, uh, to do good works. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 17 All Scripture is inspired by God, which goes back to one of our earlier points, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate or complete, depending on your translation, equipped for every good work. And I think these words are important. Being complete, being equipped for every good work, that means we don't need anything extra, right? We have what we need. God has given us what we need. We don't need additional creeds. We don't need additional Scripture. We don't need these out, any outside sources because the Bible is exclusive and the Bible is sufficient. If you look in Galatians 1 verse 8, we see this mentioned again by Paul. 
even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. This idea that what has been given is all that we need and that things outside of that, things outside of what has been recorded and passed down is false teaching, teaching that we don't need. I want to go back now and read uh, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. Now, of course, this isn't a, a New Testament passage, but I think the concepts translate, and I think it's interesting. I think this kind of sums up this point very well. All right, Psalm of David, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I think this, like I said, I think this sums it up really well, because the basis of this is God's word is everything I need. I've been given everything I need to live out the life God wants me to live. And that's very comforting. We don't have to worry about something we might have missed because it's here. It is sufficient for every good work that we want to do. It is sufficient for the life that we need to live. God has given us everything that we need. And we have no further expectations beyond what's in this book. And I think that's something to take great comfort in. So summing up real quickly because I'm almost out of time. Sure. Go that's ahead. Something that's, that's something that's really confusing about people who try to say that they can believe the Bible in another book in unison. Like people who believe the Book of Mormon will often say, oh yeah, the Bible is, is true and great, but also the Book of Mormon goes with it. Well, the second you said there's another book that you need to go with it, you're discounting that the Bible is complete truth. And that needs to be a conflict in your mind. Right. It's the same issue as the Islamic concept of Jesus, yeah. that, that he was a great prophet, but nothing more. Well, Jesus said he was more than that. So people who say, yeah, I've got the Book of Mormon or whatever to supplement the Bible, the Bible says it's exclusive. So if the Bible's good enough for you and you're adding something to it, well, the Bible's no longer... You're, you're, count, you're contradicting what the Bible is saying by adding to it a, a human creed or a human written book. Um, so the Bible is a unique book containing the sum of God's will for man. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 uh, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Uh, this is, mine says, because this applies to every person, but being the whole duty of man sounds more poetic. The idea that that is what we're here to do, and God's given us what we need. And it's been, it's been given directly from God. It's not going to change. We can relate to it, we can understand it, and it's all that we need. So we can trust both its divine authorship as well as its place in human history. We can know God's will is unchanging and equips us completely to live holy lives. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. This idea of completeness, right? Right. It fulfills everything that we need. Everything has been given and nothing more is needed. All right. Thank you for your attention this morning. Um, I have noticed a couple times that I might have skipped over uh, a fill in the blank, but I've got the key here. So if anybody needs, if anyone missed one, let me know and I can, I can give it to you. Thank you.